Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, we've got stories about a mostly Jamaican congregation being put out of their house of worship in Truro, some very expensive real estate in danger of falling into the sea in Chatham, ongoing controversies in Wellfleet's town government, and Ira Wood is here with a tribute to National Pizza Day. We begin today's report with the sad news of the death of Art Otterino, chair of East Ham's Select Board and former chair of its planning board and strategic planning committee. Otterino died in South Carolina on Sunday while visiting family with his wife when a heart condition caused him to suddenly fall ill. The Select Board held its regularly scheduled meeting on Monday and tearful tributes were offered to Otterino's service and character. Otterino was elected to the Select Board in 2020. He served on the Town Planning Board for nearly seven years, the Finance Committee for five and a half years, and the Strategic Planning Committee, where he was chairman. Otterino was a member of the East Ham Historical Society and the Nosset Light Preservation Society. Plans to memorialize Otterino have not yet been announced. The Chapel on the Pond in Truro has hosted a growing, mostly Jamaican congregation since Pastor David Brown began to lead services there in 2017. Now, Brown has gotten word from property owners Bob and Kathy Vallow that the congregation must find a new home by the end of March. Brown received a letter from the Vallows at the beginning of January announcing their decision to close the church. The Vallows are the founders of Boathouse Ministries, a nonprofit organization that offers yacht based missionary travels, which they call a voyage of evangelism and adventure. The closing date for the chapel was originally planned for January, before the couple agreed to delay until March. The Vallows bought the building at 17 Pond Road from the Roman Catholic Bishop of Fall River in January 2009 the former Our Lady of Perpetual Help Church, had closed in September 2007. Brown said the mostly Jamaican parishioners come from a Pentecostal background and are drawn towards lively, spirited worship that involves music, hand clapping, and foot stamping. During a Sunday service, Cat Black and the Reverend Christopher Vasquez, the married co-pastors for Christian Union Church just down the road in Truro, told the churchgoers that they were welcome at their church while they searched for a permanent space. Brown said the building's owners told him they want the property on the market by the beginning of April, estimating its value at between $600,000 and $1 million. He's grateful for the support from other local churches, but is also anxious to secure a permanent base. He is planning to set up a GoFundMe fundraiser so the community can raise money to buy 17 Pond Road or another space. In news that affects Truro, as well as a number of other towns across our region, David Del Gizzi is now being pursued by federal authorities for over $2 million in delinquent income taxes. 
Delgizzi is known across the Outer Cape as an absentee landlord who rents rundown properties while ignoring tax bills for years on end. He's missed several hearings at U.S. District Court, and now, if he doesn't turn over his income tax records to the court by February 15th, he will likely be found in contempt. In addition to his federal income tax issues, Del Gizzi owes Truro more than half a million dollars in overdue real estate and personal property taxes. According to Truro's tax collector, all five properties owned by Del Gizzi are in tax title, with liens on their deeds. In addition to properties on Shore Road, Moses Way, and Priest Road, Del Gizzi owes back taxes on the former Truro Motor Inn on Route 6, which the town finally shut down after a long court battle. In 1993, town officials condemned the house on Priest Road for violations of the building and health codes. The house continued to decay, prompting complaints from neighbors who said the asbestos shingles were breaking apart and releasing asbestos into the air. Del Gizzi removed the shingles after the regional office of the State Department of Environmental Protection became involved. But the building remains in its deteriorated state, with trees growing inside. Del Gizzi's tax delinquency is growing in other towns, too. In East Ham, he is $20,000 in arrears on property taxes, and in Brewster, he is more than $40,000 in arrears. The current case ended up in U.S. District Court after Del Gizzi ignored several orders from the IRS to provide tax documents for 2022. According to a lien placed on the deeds of Del Gizzi's properties in April, he owes a little over $2 million in federal income taxes, covering a six-year span from 2012 through 2017. The state has its own lien for close to $400,000 in unpaid taxes, again spanning several years. The U.S. District Court so far has had no more success at getting compliance from Del Gizzi than the IRS did. Del Gizzi failed to show up for a November 6th show cause hearing to explain why he has ignored IRS directives. The judge continued the hearing to December 13th when Del Gizzi again failed to show up. Magistrate Judge Jennifer Bowell granted another continuance to January 31st, but warned that she would not be inclined to continue the case any further. Del Gizzi missed that hearing as well, but agreed to produce the requested documents by February 15th. If Del Gizzi doesn't come through, he risks being found in contempt of court, which could lead to the issuing of an arrest warrant. Del Gizzi was arrested in December 2015 on a warrant issued by the U.S. District Court for failing to attend similar hearings on delinquent taxes. He was brought to the court, where he promised a judge he would attend a hearing the following day. That time, Del Gizzi did show up and satisfied information requests from the IRS. In Chatham, the revetment protecting the $20 million house at 97 Talipi Run on Morris Island has fallen into a deep channel that is eating into the southwest corner of the island. Coastal Resources Director Ted Kean said he's seen failed revetments before, but he's never seen it where it's literally disappeared. 
On January 24th, the Conservation Commission approved an emergency order allowing installation of 60-foot-tall steel sheeting along more than 200 feet of waterfront at 97 Talipi Run to try to stem the erosion that swallowed the rock wall that was originally built in 1998. Over the last several years, erosion has carved more than 100 feet from the bluff at the Monomoy National Wildlife Refuge headquarters property on Morris Island. Two major buildings were removed, and the final structure is slated for demolition in April. The four properties west of the refuge headquarters are protected by rock revetments. Last year, steel sheeting was installed at the Shalom property immediately west of the refuge land. The Conservation Commission also approved an increase in height of the revetment that protects the four homes from the Shalom property to 97 Talipi Run. The four waterfront homes have a collective assessed value of over $50 million. The Fool's Cut, which in 2017 broke through the barrier beach east of Morris Island, caused the breakup of South Beach. As the northern lobe of the former barrier beach moves steadily toward Morris Island, it's squeezing the channel up against the shore. The rapid tidal flow has scoured out a channel that undermined the revetment. Within a six-month period, the revetment began to slowly settle and then quickly and completely failed. Kean wrote a memo to the Conservation Commission in support of the emergency order, saying that the failure of the revetment has left the coastal bank exposed to open ocean waves, causing rapid erosion, endangering the pool and house beyond it. Large trees have toppled down the bank and present a significant navigation and public safety hazard. Kean said the potential loss of the residential structure will introduce debris and potentially hazardous material into the harbor. The pool is now six feet from the top of the bank, while the house, at its closest point, is 70 feet from the edge. The Cape Cod Commission approved the modification of the original 1998 revetment permit to allow the emergency work. Provincetown's mental health plan was introduced in 2021 with a three-year goal of hiring two mental health clinicians who could act as crisis counselors, treating patients in an emergency for free and connecting them to more permanent care. That plan was modified in 2023 into a broader public health effort that won funding from the county government for a new nurse and therapist to be shared by Provincetown, Truro, Wellfleet, and East Ham. Outer Cape Health Services won the contract to manage those positions, and town manager Alex Morse says the positions have now been filled. Outer Cape Health plans to introduce the new employees in each of the towns this month, with caseload management set to begin in March. There are no insurance requirements to visit either the nurse or the therapist. The therapist practice includes initial treatment and triage to higher levels of care where needed, as well as mental health education and collaboration with public safety. The nurse's scope of practice includes condition management and education, safety assessment and planning, and connections to additional resources as needed. You can find out more by visiting outercape.org. In the event of a mental health emergency, please call 988. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn.
The potential addition of a fourth full-time employee at the Wellfleet Shellfish Department has angered some members of the shellfishing community who dispute the process by which Town Administrator Rich Waldo and Shellfish Constable Nancy Chavetta established the position. But officials say the Deputy Constable position was created through routine procedures and that the accusations of deceitful conduct are unjustified. The new deputy was budgeted as a three-quarter time job at last April's town meeting. It was increased to full-time with the approval of the select board on July 13th and then approved again on October 17th after select board member John Wolf requested a second vote. A November 9th opinion from town council Carolyn Murray said that Waldo was within his legal authority as administrator to increase the position to full-time. Outrage over the position, which is still unfilled, has led to heated exchanges among the Select Board, Shellfish Advisory Board, and Finance Committee. Public comments at those meetings have shown intense distrust of Wellfleet's town government. Waldo told The Independent that the controversy was part of what led him to submit his resignation. His last day as town administrator is today, February 9th. Wellfleet's shellfish department currently has three full-time staffers that oversee an industry with $9.5 million in revenue, more than any other town in the state. Chavetta said the department has expanded its services since she became constable in 2017. The budget for fiscal 2019 created a part-time summer deputy constable to help oversee recreational shellfishing. In 2020, the department increased that position to full-time. Last year, Chavetta went to the Finance Committee to expand the position to three-quarter time, full-time in the summer and part-time in the winter. In her fiscal 24 budget request, Chavetta included a $17,000 increase in the department's salary budget to cover the cost of the expansion. That request was recommended by the Finance Committee, approved by the Select Board at its March 7th meeting, and approved by Town Meeting on April 29th as part of the Town's total operating budget. Members of the shellfishing community and several members of the Shellfish Advisory Board argue that the creation of a fourth deputy constable is excessive. Shellfish Advisory Board member Brad Morse called the Shellfish Department overstaffed and overfunded at a meeting of that board on January 18th. After the three-quarter time deputy was approved at town meeting, the department advertised the position but got no applications. Waldo told the select board in October that the common response was that applicants want a full-time position. In a memo included in the June 6th town administrator's report to the select board, Chavetta wrote that she worked with the town administrator to increase the part-time winter position to full-time in order to take on principal clerk shellfish-related responsibilities such as grant licenses and winter shellfish permit sales. The principal clerk position, which kept records of grant licenses and permits, had been vacant since Jean McLaughlin left in March of 22, over a year earlier.
Waldo told the Independent that then-chair of the select board Ryan Curley read the town administrator's report and believed that Waldo could not reallocate those job duties without the approval of the select board. On July 13th, the select board unanimously approved a reorganization of the principal clerk's job that transferred its shellfish-related duties to the deputy shellfish constable. The town then re-advertised the deputy shellfish constable job as a full-time year-round position at a difference of $10,000 per year, using unexpended money from the shellfish department's budget. The outrage that resulted led to a second select board hearing on the position on October 17th. Curley claimed the board had voted on the reorganization of the principal clerk position at its July meeting, but not the deputy shellfish constable position. The select board voted to approve the full-time position again, but made its decision contingent on a legal opinion from town council. Curley abstained, making the vote 4-0-1. to zero to one. Town council addressed her opinion to Waldo, who forwarded it to the select board on November 13th. It stated that the town administrator has the authority to update job descriptions, to add duties, and to convert a position to full-time, provided sufficient funds have been appropriated. Despite the legal opinion, some shell fishermen have continued to insist that Chavetta and Waldo acted improperly. Morse wrote to Select Board Chair Barbara Carboni on January 24th to say that town staff had provided town council with inaccurate fraudulent information with which to form the opinion. Waldo said he believes that people are angry at Chavetta for doing her job. Given that her job is enforcement, and people were used to not having enforcement before she began, they don't like it, according to Waldo. Waldo also said the controversy helps explain why he resigned. He said that when every administrative move requires so much additional unnecessary effort, it becomes impossible to do the job he was hired to do. The full-time Deputy Shellfish Constable position was advertised again on December 27th, and application closed on January 19th. We reported last week on some zoning bylaw changes that could come before Provincetown voters this spring in an effort to allow more two- and three-family homes. A slate of proposed zoning amendments will also go before Orleans voters at May's annual town meeting, with the hope of making the creation of housing in that town easier. The Planning Board will hold a public hearing on seven proposed amendments at 4 p.m. on February 13th in the Nauset Room at Town Hall. Orleans and the rest of the Cape are wrestling with an ongoing housing crisis in which attainable year-round housing remains out of reach for many. There's no one solution to the problem, and the proposed amendments are designed to tackle the problem in a number of different ways. A housing needs assessment presented to the select board in November calls for the creation of 350 new units of housing over the next 10 years, with 150 of those new units to be deed-restricted as affordable. By comparison, the town's last needs assessment from 2017 called for the creation of 100 new units by 2027. 
The proposed zoning changes include instituting a minimum 30-day rental period for multifamily apartments, removing the minimum lot size for one- and two-family dwellings in the business district, allowing commercial buildings to house up to four residential units by right, and a provision that would allow hotels and motels to convert to residential housing with a special permit. The planning board is also aiming to make it easier and more appealing for property owners to create accessory dwelling units. These are secondary structures to a primary residence that can be rented as housing, such as a unit over a garage or an attached apartment. The board is proposing an amendment to increase the maximum ADU square footage from 800 to 1,200 square feet. The amendment also would eliminate any restrictions regarding minimum lot size for the accessory units. George Maservi, the town's director of planning and community development, said the change could motivate more people to create ADUs, noting that the planning department currently gets fewer than five requests per year to build them on average. Another proposed amendment would allow up to four residential units in a commercial building by right with conditions. These units can either be in the same building as the commercial business or in a standalone structure on the same lot. Maservi said there's been more demand for these mixed building uses, especially as businesses look for ways to try and create housing for their seasonal and year-round employees. Zoning in Orleans dates back to the creation of the Orleans Protective Bylaw in 1949. That bylaw was intended to manage growth, but the opposite problem exists today as the town's housing needs continue to grow. The Select Board in December entertained talk of potentially rewriting the bylaw from the ground up. Select Board member Mark Matheson noted that the bylaw wasn't written to accommodate things such as sewering or the rapidly changing housing market. For now, planning officials are focusing on the weeks and months ahead as they prepare to make their case for the changes at town meeting. All zoning articles require a two-thirds majority vote at town meeting. And finally today, Massachusetts Audubon has pledged $3.5 million to the town of Brewster to help protect and develop the two Cape Cod Sea Camps properties. The properties consist of 55 acres on Cape Cod Bay and Route 6A and 66 acres on Route 137 and Long Pond. Mass Audubon President David O'Neill said that the partnership will allow the town to do things that wouldn't happen otherwise. The Board of Directors of Mass Audubon have approved $2 million for the Bay property, which has over 90 buildings and cabins and extensive beach frontage on the Bay. Mass Audubon will hold a 10-acre conservation restriction surrounding a small pond at the north end of the property adjoining Brewster's Spruce Hill Woods. That land also covers coastal dunes and woods. Trails would be constructed through the woods and around the pond. Under the plans for the property the town will present at a forum on February 15th, Audubon will construct a nature center with office space on the Bay property, as well as a smaller one on the pond property. Mass Audubon pledged $1.5 million to the Long Pond property, 
and the Brewster Conservation Trust will also give at least a million dollars to obtain a conservation restriction on 56 acres, leaving 10 acres along Route 137 for affordable housing and a possible wastewater treatment plant. That leaves 85% of that property retained for conservation and recreation. That still requires town meeting approval. Mass Audubon will run outdoor education programming at the pond, such as bird watching, kayaking, pond and wetland exploration. A summer camp is also a possibility. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. Can you think of a holiday that touches us all, no matter our differences? A holiday that honors a connection to our very human biology, that celebrates one of life's constants, one that comforts and sustains us and can even invoke feelings of love. I'm not talking about motherhood, but pizza, and what better time to recognize pizza's extraordinary virtues than February the 9th, National Pizza Day. Think about it. What else can you unconditionally rely on to soothe children, to unite a family, to revive the spirit, even stave off heartache, however temporarily when we're all alone? That would be Pizza, my friend, the one comestible on earth that's even better for breakfast than at dinner the night before. Statistics tell us that the average American eats approximately 156 slices of pizza a year, with a third having pizza at least once a week and most eating an average of three slices per sitting. But that's only here in the United States, the second largest pizza-consuming country on Earth after Norway. And as far as the universe is concerned, the Russian Space Agency once delivered a six-inch pizza to the International Space Station, where cosmonaut Yuri Usachev had the honor of being the first person to grab a slice while in orbit. Foods resembling pizza have been known for thousands of years. Ancient literature records that China, India, and Greece each had their own versions of pizza, but food scholars tell us that Persian soldiers serving under Darius the Great in the 6th century BC baked flatbreads with cheese and dates on top of their shields. Although it's commonly thought of as Italian, pizza as we know it didn't exist in Italy until well after tomatoes arrived, courtesy of the Spanish, who first appropriated them from the Aztecs in the New World. Even then, tomatoes were thought to be poisonous until a doctor rubbed an unripe tomato over somebody's skin ailment and the ailment healed. There are many stories about the origin of the first true pizza, but the reigning favorite 
holds that in the late 19th century, a Neapolitan baker named Rafael Esposito created the Pizza Margarita in honor of the Queen Consort of Italy, a focaccio garnished with tomatoes, mozzarella, and basil, all the colors appearing on the national flag of Italy. With the arrival of Italian immigrants at the turn of the 20th century, pizza was firmly entrenched in the United States, with various cities laying claim to having the first pizzerias. But pizza cravings went viral with the return of Allied soldiers from the Italian campaign during World War II, who had supplemented their meager K-rations with street food sold by vendors. There's a biological reason we crave pizza. It has to do with the chemical reaction that occurs in our brains when amino acids in high-protein foods such as cheese and meats react with the sugars in those foods when heated. But even vegans get a buzz when the carbs in the crust activate the brain's reward center. Pizza is a $50 billion a year business in the United States alone, dominated, as you might guess, by the big chains. But pizza being a labor-intensive business serves as a gateway for immigrants willing to put in the hours. And therein lies the beautiful genius of pizza a simple food that encourages ethnic groups ranging from Greek to Latino to Lebanese and Indian to produce versions that include ingredients from their homelands. It probably doesn't surprise you to hear that pepperoni is the most requested pizza topping. With over 250 million pounds of pepperoni consumed every year. Anchovies are the least favorite topping, although I'd order them over pineapple any time. For those of you who love Wellfleet's annual oyster shucking contest, you might enjoy the World Pizza Championships even more, where the competitive events include freestyle acrobatic dough tossing, largest dough stretch, fastest pizza box folding, and the Pizza Triathlon. So let's all order one for National Pizza Day, everybody. I'm ordering two, because there's nothing better than cold pizza for breakfast. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Stirred Not Shaken with Hank and Andy on Outermost Community Radio, WOMR. Just move your mama and go down. Just move your mama and go down.